When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as expert insight and analysis into everything you're talking about in the game. I'm Ian McGarvey, and joining me as always is Duncan Castles. I'm delighted to say we'll also be joined later in the pod by legendary striker of all four divisions in English football, Glenn Murray, of course, currently at Brighton Hove Albion, who will be talking Christmas dinners, training on Christmas Day, and he might even be throwing in a wee story about scoring against Chelsea and getting the tube afterwards. Uh, You've got that to look forward to, but of course, first, we'd like to bring you breaking news, and we're going to do that now. And that is the situation regarding Everton's appointment of their new manager, of course, who will be Carlo Ancelotti, as we have discussed extensively on the Transfer Window podcast. But also, news, Duncan, that Zlatan Ibrahimovic has been in conversations with the Italian coach and in regard to joining them on January the 1st, when, of course, he's a free agent having left LA Galaxy. My information is that Ancelotti sees um, Ibrahimovic as a kind of, um, let's just say, a battery that's gone flat. And he thinks that he can give them a bit of a quick charge uh, for six months. Um, He can reinvigorate that Everton attack uh, by his personality, by his presence, by his reputation. Um, It won't be cheap. And um, I think Everton know that. But it's whether or not they can convince Ibrahimovic to come back to the Premier League, where, of course, he spent a successful period of time with Manchester United, uh, in which his goals-to-games ratio was very impressive. But, of course, he is now older, <laughs> that's fair to say, and possibly not in the same physical condition that he was when he left Old Trafford. Duncan, do you think Ibrahimovic would be a good fit for Everton at this, this point in time? I mean... One of the great phrases I heard in this conversation I was having with um, people close to Ancelotti was, how much better could it get? You've got Duncan Ferguson coaching, well, Duncan Ferguson. You think Zlatan Ibrahimovic is the modern Duncan Ferguson? Is that the, the thinking in, in the Ancelotti I, camp? You know what? I, think, I think probably a 38-year-old Ibrahimovic is probably the equivalent of a 25-year-old Duncan Ferguson. <laughs> Well, no, we, we all know. Dunk, by the way, I don't want to be getting in fights with you. Well, we all know that Duncan Ferguson's career went downhill after he left Tannadice, but um, I think that's maybe slightly exaggerating the difference between the two. Um, I can see why Carlo is trying to do this. Um, Ibrahimovic was a very important presence, not simply on the field, but in the dressing room when he was at Manchester United. And, and one of the reasons. Jose Mourinho went out of his way to bring him to the club with him in 2016 was he wanted a winner and he wanted a personality and uh, an example 
to the dressing room of what a top footballer um, does, how he, how he holds himself, how he competes in training sessions, um, how he is utterly focused on winning in every game. And um, Ibrahimovic fulfilled all those things. He was also very popular within the dressing room. So he was a combination of, of someone that the players respected and liked, um, which is quite unusual in the modern game. And, and you can understand why Ancelotti, having worked with Ibrahimovic on multiple occasions and, and developing a, a very strong working and personal relationship with the player, would see that as a potential solution or an aid to an Everton dressing room that um, has been problematic, mainly, I think, because of the way it's been structured. So much money has been spent there. We've said in the podcast before, they have the 11th highest squad in terms of um, construction cost um, by transfer fees in the whole of the European game. Very high salary bill. They have a lot of discontented players. Um, they have a history of turning over managers. There, there, are, there are no shortage of problems to solve within that dressing room. So therefore, Ancelotti thinking, Ibrahimovic wants to come back to European football. He's available without a transfer fee. That doesn't mean he's available without cost. He will come with significant cost in terms of um, wages and uh, commission to his agent, Mino Raiola. But um, it's an opportunity to bring that presence into the dressing room at Everton and have an immediate impact there. I think the difficulty here is Zlatan's physical condition. He's now over 38 years of age. The reason he um, finished or left Manchester United was because at the end of his first season at Manchester United, he suffered one of the worst knee injuries you can have in football tearing not just uh, anterior cruciate ligaments, but also posterior cruciate ligaments in, the, in one um, incident, which was a result of fatigue from having played so many games, um, pushing himself in a Europa League game to get a result at the end of the match. When that happened, um, I talked to a number of people in football who, with a lot of experience of, of handling injuries, and they were universally said he will never get back to the same level again. No player can recover from anterior and posterior cruciate ligaments um, and get back to the same uh, explosive physical ability that they had before. Um, they felt that he could get back on the field, but mainly because of his supreme physical condition away in, in the rest of his body and his mental attitude. And they predicted that he would go to a lesser league and do well there, which he has done. Two years in LA Galaxy, scoring 52 goals, 56 uh, MLS appearances, scoring over a goal a game in this past season. Um, so there is there is a there's there's an argument to be had, I think, internally for Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Am I ready? to go back to the Premier League, the most demanding of physical leagues, where the pace of the game is the highest it will be. And um, I, what I understand from other people who have talked to him about what he intends to do uh, as a free agent, one of his concerns is exactly that. Can he go to a league in Europe 
where he has enough physical level left, enough speed um, left in him to be able to score goals and be a winner on the pitch, which has always been his overriding um, concern as a footballer to to score goals, win titles, to be perceived as being one of the best players around. Um, so I think this will come down to that, whether Ancelotti can convince him to come back to the Premier League and whether he convinces himself that the risk of going back to the Premier League in a lesser team than the one he uh, joined previously is one that's going to not damage his reputation um, and allow him to be a, a respected, successful figure on the field in the European game again. Knowing Zlatan's, um, let's just say, uh, <laughs> sense of uh, self-possession and um, uh, his self-image, his ego, etc., etc., I think it'd be very difficult for him to turn down the opportunity to play in again in one of Europe's top five leagues and, and particularly uh, in the English Premier League uh, with regards to its reputation worldwide. It's interesting what you say, Duncan, with regards to um, how he will want to feel his legacy um, is left uh, now that he's coming to the end of his career. But judging by his time in MLS with LA Galaxy, um, okay, it's an inferior league in terms of competition with regards to what we engage in Europe. But at the same time, the one thing with Latin is you're always going to get something out of the ordinary. There'll always be an extraordinary goal or circumstance or assist. And spending six months at Everton under Carlo Ancelotti, um, he's not got a lot of competition, let's face it, up front. Richarlison, Calvert-Lewin, they've not been tearing up any trees with regards to their goal scoring. Um, he'd be a starting uh, figure uh, in that Everton 11. And I think for all the reasons that we've spoken about in terms of his talismanic status, the fact that he will bring um, a, a sense of aura to that dressing room, his professionalism, the, f um, the way that he will inspire players around him as well, because he is, let's face it, he is Iams Lam. And uh, that, I think, could be beneficial to Everton rather than detrimental in their current situation. And again, with Ancelotti as a manager, if he can attract someone like Zlatan to come to Merseyside in the situation that Everton are in, it says a lot about his reputation and his relationships with you know, one of the major figures in world football. So, yeah, I, I, I like to think that it's uh, not just a possibility but I'd like to see him back and, uh, yeah, playing in the Premier League because he is box office, no doubt about it. Well, I've been quite impressed with the, the Calvert-Lewin Richarlison partnership that, that Ferguson has put together during his time as uh, interim manager. And, and remember, he will be in charge again for this weekend's game because Ancelotti's um, exit from Napoli delayed him um, arriving in Liverpool to start taking training this week. And I'm, I can tell you that's now been completely sorted and he is free to sign that contract that he agreed um, with Everton earlier this week, in which we gave you the details of in the podcast earlier this week. Um, he didn't necessarily play as centre-forward. Uh, Zlatan 
has in the latter stage of his career sort of made a lot of uh, his success from uh, playing as a kind of false nine so being provisionally the centre forward but dropping back into midfield to lose his marker and to create the play from there so perhaps Ancelotti's um, considering using a system where Ibrahimovic will be further back in the play and he, he, certainly they have a shortage of, of uh, fit uh, central midfielders at present. That game against Manchester United where they got a draw, one of the things that, that Ferguson should be credited for is he only had two uh, players capable of pay- playing in central mo- midfield who were fit uh, in that game, one of whom got an early yellow card and, and had to watch his play for the rest of the match. And the other, Mason Holgate, is usually used as a centre-back, so it was already a, not completely his natural position. So they, they do need extra bodies in that area at present. And um, in principle, Ibrahimovic could sign immediately because he is a free agent, doesn't have to wait for the 1st of January to, uh, to become an Everton player. One other detail here that's important is that I, I can tell you that when Ancelotti was discussing the role with Everton, he obviously asked about transfer budget and was told that um, we have money and we're ready to spend. So he has been, he comes into this job with an assurance from the owners. And remember, they are backed by um, Alisher Usmanov's uh, cash, and, and he is one of uh, the richest individuals in Russia. Um, so he has the assurance there that the squad he inherits isn't the one he has to work with indefinitely. They are prepared to put money, more money into this project. Uh, and I think they want to use Carlo Ancelotti as a hook to get a better class of player into the club because they can sell uh, his name, his character, his experience um, to players. Uh, and obviously someone of Ancelotti's stature is going to be more successful in the, that domain than a Marco Silva or, or even a Sam Allardyce. Well, I, I, I chuckled there, Duncan, when you um, discussed the possibility of Zlatan playing as a false nine. Um, I'm sure that he could use his, his um, superpower of invisibility to play as a false nine so that no one would actually see him <laughs> as, he, as he ghosts into the box to score a goal. Um, uh, viva Zlatan. Let's hope we see him back in the Premier League. Uh, someone who I, I believe uh, we are going to be seeing uh, in the Premier League in his own right as a manager is Mikel Arteta uh, we've been reporting um, as you all know on the podcast uh, his move to Arsenal uh, one of the more intriguing aspects of Arteta's departure from the Etihad Stadium is that he was the anointed successor to Pep Guardiola as Manchester City manager something which Guardiola has, has discussed publicly and has praised Arteta for his abilities and qualities and said that he would see him as the kind of person who would rightfully take his place um, as head coach at Manchester City. Our information, however, is that um, when Arsenal made their approach, that Arteta discussed it with um, Guardiola, and Guardiola admitted to him that, um, first of all, despite his own personal opinion and his own endorsement of Arteta as the next head coach of Manchester City. He could not guarantee him 
that that would be the case, I, Guardiola himself um, was not enough to ensure that the succession would take place. Um, and also, interestingly, that Guardiola, um, when asked by Arteta regarding his own future, and that is Guardiola's, um, where would you be and, and how do you see your future? Guardiola said, you must make your own decision based on your responsibilities with regards to your own career and your personal life, as well as your ambitions, which has now, as we all know, seen Arteta put in a position where he is negotiating ongoing with Arsenal, but we expect those negotiations to be successfully concluded in the next 24 hours, which will see Arteta become the next head coach of Arsenal. Two things here, Duncan. One um, is, well, will Arteta be successful where Unai Emery failed, um, given the, uh, I think what we can say is now a fashion for um, coaches who are inexperienced but have a connection to a club uh, being appointed. And we've seen this with um, Frank Lampard at Chelsea and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with Manchester United. And secondly, um, and possibly more interestingly, where does this leave Manchester City and Pep Guardiola uh, regarding his future and where they're going post-Guardiola? Well, we've already talked in the podcast about Arteta and the risk that Arsenal are taking in appointing him. Um, so, yeah, in summary, he's only been coaching for three and a half years. Um, he is highly regarded by a lot of the people he's worked with, Guardiola in principle, but also individual players. You have um, people like Raheem Sterling publicly crediting him with the work he did on the training ground uh, to focus on end product uh, and, and making the most of every opportunity he had with the ball near the opposition box. These are all great assets, but there's a big difference between being an assistant coach and being a manager in your own right. And there's a big difference between being an assistant coach at the club with the greatest resources ever granted um, to a management team in football and moving to a club that is still less than two years post-dismissing Arsene Wenger, a dominant manager who dictated the course of not just the football team, but the whole club. Um, you know, pushed that, that, that club into building a stadium which changed their financial structure, which changed the, the, the way in which they recruited players, the way in which they focused on youth players, the way in which they played the game, part, part of which Arteta was um, as a player. Uh, that period in which Arsenal went from being one of the two teams competing for the Premier League each season to a team that was happy with qualifying for the Champions League each year to a team that now hasn't been in the Champions League for three years, doesn't look like getting into the Champions League again this season, and has, if you look at the latest accounts, significant financial issues because of the wage bill it's taken on to try and get back into that tournament and, uh, and its failure to get there. Uh, it's a very difficult job. This is, uh, and we, we did a, a podcast on this recently, there's very, a, a very clear comparison to Manchester United and the troubles they have faced since allowing Sir Alex Ferguson to step down as manager um, and losing an all-dominant figure who ran the club 
from top to bottom to those problems that Arsenal are facing after doing the same thing uh, on a lesser budget, albeit their budget is very large by European standards, um, and missing out on Champions League football regularly. So it's a big ask for Arteta, and he's going to have to show a, a far broader range of skills than those that were required to be an assistant to Pep Guardiola. I know why Arsenal have done it, partly because of his reputation, partly because of, of the work he's been doing with Guardiola, but I think a big part of it is he is a former Arsenal player. It's a, an appointment that goes down well with the fans. It buys them time. It's uh, almost the polar opposite of what they did with Unai Emery. Um, and as you say, there's been a fashion in Premier League to appointing former players from clubs, the, the clubs at the top end, or historically at the top end of the Premier League, who've, who've uh, found themselves in troubles. For Manchester City, there's no question it's a loss. I mean, you, you only have to look at the way Pep Guardiola has talked about Arteta to see that he rates the man highly, and therefore you do not want to lose one of your assistants in that situation. And Guardiola has been very professional, um, very humane, I think, in the way he's handled this situation, in that he has um, said both publicly and privately, this is your decision. I'm not going to stand in your way. You, I, I believe in you as a football manager. Um, therefore, it's up to you. If you think that this is the right time to leave, you go with my blessing, which other managers in his situation would not do. Other managers in this situation have pressed important assistants to remain at the club and use psychological pressure to, to retain their services because they know how important they are to them. But if you add that loss in, to what Manchester City have already suffered in terms of playing personnel uh, detriments this season. Vincent Company deciding not to take up a new contract uh, and go off and become a manager himself when City expected to have him for another year. Emeric Laporte uh, injuring himself early in the season, leaving Guardiola with no centre-backs, despite the vast amount that the club has spent on centre-backs that he trusts in uh, that defence. Leroy Zani um, in a position where he may have left the club anyway uh, with a big offer from Bayern Munich was on the point of making a decision about that transfer being injured in uh, the uh, community shield game that he did not want to play in um, because he was discussing his future with Bayern um, and being unhappy with the club before that situation and being further um, displeased with the club and the manager as a result of the injury he suffered. They, they have been without a number of key players on, on the playing field and that has damaged their um, attempt to retain the Premier League title for a third season and they clearly are not going to do that. To lose Arteta as well I think complicates and makes it harder for them um, in the Champions League this season which is the huge challenge to, to Pep Guardiola. Um, to actually deliver the tournament that Abu Dhabi um, desperately want to win to become the first Arab um, state, first Arab owners to win that Champions League, that direct competition they have with Qatar uh, and PSG, who, who they're basically involved in a soft war with uh, politically. The pressure is on Guardiola to deliver there. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about the doubts over Guardiola's future 
And I think those doubts over his future feed into this decision from Arteta because you've, you've explained that Guardiola could not give Arteta the promise that he would be his successor because that's not in Guardiola's mandate. The club are as aware as anyone that they will not retain Guardiola forever. They are as aware as anyone that Guardiola has a history of exiting clubs when it suits him. Therefore, they have to have um, provisions in place for replacing the most successful manager in their history. And, and I think it's more complicated for them than it is for most clubs because they have built their football department entirely around him. They hired the chief executive. They hired a director of football to get Guardiola. They started signing players before he had even um, arrived at the club. Very expensive players like Kevin De Bruyne and Raheem Sterling with him coming in in mind. They overhauled their academy and their way of playing with Guardiola's method in mind. When you build to that extent around one individual, the succession becomes even more complex because you have to decide whether you go with his coaching style and how do you find an individual of similar, similar character and technical attributes as Guardiola to replace him. Um, therefore, you can see why Manchester City wouldn't want to be shoehorned into giving the job to, and this is where the conversation starts, an assistant coach who's never been in charge of a football club in his own right, who only has a limited number of years' experience in coaching. That would be a risky appointment for Manchester City. One, they were not prepared to commit themselves to at this stage, which is why Arteta is going to Arsenal. Um, and kind of underlines the degree of risk Arsenal are taking in making that appointment themselves. I think it's very interesting, Duncan, um, that uh, A, as we've said, um, Guardiola was not able to guarantee um, that Arteta would be his successor, which, unlike the way Ferguson left Manchester United, he um, effectively anointed his successor. Indeed, the banner of the chosen one became a um, bit of a... Uh, heavy chain around David Moyes' neck uh, in terms of his tenure at Old Trafford. Um, I still think that in taking the job at Arsenal, given the chaos and uncertainty that surrounds that club right now, if he can turn that round and make it into success, he still has a chance of proving himself to be capable of, of succeeding Guardiola at Manchester City. Though my thoughts turn to Mauricio Pochettino. And the reason that for that is that he was offered a pre-contract um, agreement with Real Madrid, which he has yet to sign, which would give him 2.5 million euros net uh, just for signing that contract, which would be um, non-refundable. And until June the 30th, it would be binding. Uh, June the 30th, 2020, that is as well as a signing on fee, very handsome one. Um, and that's even before he begins his contract negotiations. Now, the fact that Pochettino and, and his representatives have turned that down do make me think that he sees not just Manchester United, who have obviously been long-term suitors uh, for the Argentinian coach, but also Manchester City, possibly looking at him as a replacement for Guardiola. And again, despite Guardiola's insistence that he will see out his contract until 2021, um, it seems to me that there is doubt 
amongst the um, executives at the club that that may not be the case and that indeed uh, he has other things on his mind. And of course, as we've said in the podcast and uh, Roger Mitchell, um, our good friend, flagged up that Juventus is an open invitation for him, that perhaps you know we're getting close to the exit strategy that Pep always plans well in advance and knows what he's going to do. Well, if Manchester City are interested in Maurizio Pochettino, it'll be interesting to know if they formally um, inform uh, Tottenham Hotspur about their interest in Pochettino before they talk to him because they've been making a big uh, song and dance in the media this week over um, Arsenal's supposed failure <laughs> to communicate their interest in Mikel Arteta. Why do I say that? Because Pochettino remains an employee of Tottenham. He's, as we we um, told you on the podcast, when he was removed from his duties, um, he is still on the payroll there. He hasn't been sacked. So he's still a Tottenham employee. And uh, the, in this, if you want to take this hard line approach that Manchester City seemed to want to do um, this week, that you must always inform uh, other clubs in the league before you talk to them about their employees, then we'd, we'd expect them to do that about Pochettino. Um, bizarre, I think, because again, as, as you told us, Ian, um, Arteta had communicated to Guardiola and to Chiki Bergiristan that he had an approach from Arsenal and, and wanted permission to speak to him, and they were happy for him to and, speak and to And Pep said this, Duncan. Pep said this in his pre-match press conference um, before the Carabao Cup quarterfinal. He said he knew about the approach, and yet the club took a very, very divergent stance on that and said, no, we didn't know about this, and we're seeking compensation. And the two seem to be at loggerheads, and it seems to me that Pep's gone a bit rogue here. And if he, if Pep goes rogue, then you know that it means something else is going to happen. Uh, which he has done before, but look, the, the context of this from complaint about Arsenal from Manchester City is hilarious, given that this is the club that took Emmanuel Adebayor, Samir Nasri, Gal Clichy, Bakari Sanya from Arsenal, uh, also got very close to taking Robin Van Persie from Arsenal before Manchester United uh, beat them. Manchester City, did you put a formal uh, request into Arsenal on each of those occasions when you were um, uh, approaching their their best players uh, and offering them large contracts to come north and, and leave the London club at the time? I, I don't believe you did. Interesting times between Manchester City and Arsenal. As always, it seems that there is a growing um, and evolving drama around those two clubs. Uh, Duncan, um, Tottenham Hotspur, um, transfer window coming up, um, naming right still on the table, but with a new manager in Jose Mourinho, relatively new obviously, and a budget to spend as well as players who are out of contract. What's the latest on how things are going at Spurs regarding um, reinforcing their squad or indeed selling players um, to other clubs in the Premier League? Well, Daniel Levy um, gave a very rare interview uh, to the Evening Standard this week. Um, he's not a man who speaks publicly very often, and the, the subject of that interview was about the stadium, the stadium build. Um, it's an interesting read. Um, the, the difficulties that went into it, including um, one of 
Tottenham Hotspur's warehouses being hijacked by uh, cannabis growers at one point, and apparently those cannabis growers, when when Tottenham reported that the uh, the use of their warehouse to the police, went and um, smashed the water supply into other buildings around the the stadium that uh, that Tottenham owned, and uh, and ended up flooding those properties and delaying. The, the build of the stadium as a result. So lots of little detail in there, including Daniel Levy talking about naming rights lane and saying how um, they have very important criteria as to the company they would, they would take on, that it has to be the, the right brand in the right sector for the right money. And the, the number that's being floated is 25 million pounds a year. But I think more more importantly, in terms of the current squad, he, he put some markers down about the the players that they have uh, coming to the end of contract, such as Toby Alderweireld and Christian Eriksen. Um, didn't mention them by name, but uh, said that they would not be afraid to sell to a rival um, if that was uh, the the best outcome for them from a financial perspective. Um, Levy said, we're honestly not scared to trade with our rivals. My view is really simple. For a player to sign a new contract, not only have the conditions got to be right, but the player has got to want to do it. It's up to those players whether they want to stay at Tottenham, and we'll see. So I think that's a message, a very clear message to Christian Eriksen in particular, that um, you have to demonstrate that you want to remain part of this project and you have to accept the financial terms that I am uh, ready to offer you. Otherwise, we will sell you in January, which, of course, Ericsson could respond to by saying, I don't want to be sold in January and run his contract down and leave on a, on a free transfer in the summer. But that's, that's Levy's public position. He was also asked about... Um, reinforcements, new players coming in in the January market and his immediate response was to say that Jose Mourinho is on record as saying what we need now is to get the players playing better, which is what they're doing. He's made it clear he's not looking for new players in January, he's happy with what he's got and that's why he said that. Additionally, he talked about the degree of spend that Tottenham have made in the market in previous years and um, we have been wondering what the the huge income additional income that comes from naming rights lane will mean to Tottenham spending going forward and remember their their um, salary uh, to revenue ratio is the lowest in the Premier League and they do have a lot of headroom to spend if Levy was prepared to do that um, he basically said that they will not be spending the same amount as their direct rivals for the title. Um, he said, we have to get rid of this obsession in England of spending money. It just doesn't happen overseas. There is an amount we have allocated to spend each year in terms of net investment in the team. If you compare us to certain other clubs, they will have more money to spend. It doesn't frighten us. So that, that's quite stark messaging. Um, Jose Mourinho's perspective, well, we told you when he took over the job that he was had had come in with no preconceptions. Um, previously, when he's moved to new clubs, he's looked at the squad on paper and from having uh, coached against them and had and made decisions that this player isn't going to work in his system, and therefore I would need, for example, a new fullback or a new defensive midfielder. Having looked at the squad, he specifically came in this time. 
wanting to work with the players in the training ground for a couple of months to see what they were like as individuals um, with a, a completely fresh sheet of paper. Um, allow himself to, to work with them day to day, use them in his teams and then make a decision as to how the squad should be improved. Um, talking to someone close to him, I think in an ideal world he would like to spend in January. Um, he sees some issues that could he feels could be resolved in the January market, but he's happy to go along with the the, the situation that's presented to them. And I'm told is 80% likely that no one will be coming into the club in the January window. What will happen as we go into the, the new year is he will start working on a summer rebuild. He'll start putting plans in place to, um, to, to make the changes required for next season and uh, identify targets, identify the areas um, which need to be improved and identify the players he'd like Daniel Levy and other recruitment people at the club to start working on. So that's basically where Tottenham stand in the transfer market at present. I sincerely hope that Daniel Levy has gone to Waitrose and wrapped up some lovely Class A large <laughs> eggs for Josie's Christmas present. Speaking of uh, eggs, um, I'm delighted that now to say that we are joined by Glenn Murray, whose um, Christmas, mince pies have been baking in the oven, uh, but he's keen uh, to join us in the debate around uh, the managerial situations at Arsenal, Manchester United and Chelsea. Glenn, I'm very interested to get your point of view on um, these younger or certainly um, coaches who have played for the clubs that they're now managing. Um, does that give them an advantage in terms of the, um, the way that they operate? Or um, does it, in fact, maybe disadvantage them because so much more is expected of a former player at the club? And, of course, we're talking here about Frank Lampard at Chelsea, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United, and um, who we've been talking about already on the podcast, um, and that's Mikel Arteta, who obviously is a former Arsenal player. Do you think it gives? Do you think it's better in terms of um, their ability to manage, knowing how the club works? Yeah, I think I think it gives them an advantage. They they've obviously been in. I mean, we've got to to uh, respect these players' careers as well. They all had brilliant careers at the clubs they've they've taken over at. Uh, so they were there for quite a while. Um, they know the club's DNA. They've got a good relationship with the hierarchy at the club. Um, they've also, which is really important um, in my mind, is they have a good relationship with the fans. Uh, the fans remember them fondly um, from good times at the club and good times they had together. And I think that in turn can keep the fans on side maybe a little bit longer. Um, and I think what we've got to highlight as well at the... At the the three respective clubs, um, Chelsea, Manchester United and Arsenal. At the times th these guys have, have, have got the jobs, the, the club's not at its, its highest point. Uh, so, that, so they're reverting back to type and, and like I say, someone that knows the club um, very well. 
with Lampard, we see we seen him at Derby playing a lot of youth and uh, and doing very well and being very successful at that. Um, Chelsea therefore got a transfer ban and 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 felt as though they wanted a change of man and 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 Frank would be the f- perfect man and um, and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer obviously has taken over from a couple of of managers that haven't quite went to plan for Manchester United so they've gone back to tight with him and I think we see the same situation again with Arsenal and Mikel uh, Arteta taking over. I think that's right, Glenn. I think it, you, you could make a case, and we've talked about this in the podcast, that Manchester United are a club with a lot of difficulties trying to um, manage that transition from losing Sir Alex Ferguson, an all-dominant manager. Arsenal are kind of headed in that direction and obviously losing an all-dominant manager and you can see the, the problems piling up. And Chelsea are used to changes of managers, but they, they don't have that kind of financial... Um, strengths versus the rest of the, the top teams in the league that they had before and the transfer ban to deal with. So it, it seems like it's a, also a strategic play by the clubs to build, buy themselves a bit of time with the supporters by bringing a, a manager in who, who has already has their affections as well as knowing the club from their time playing there. Yeah, I mean that, that that's exactly what I was trying to highlight in in, in those cases, and um, and yeah, like I say, we we see a lot of managers come come to come to uh, well any any club for for that matter, not just not just the Premier League, but and sooner rather than later, it seems that communication breaks down between the manager and the and the hierarchy of the club, and um, I think I think this is a quick fire way to stop that happening because. Like I say, the, these guys have previously worked together and been successful together. Therefore, they've got a good relationship and and are more amicable in in their thoughts and and the way they work. Because I don't think uh, um, you know I'm not being unkind in saying that you're a man who is in the um, last phase of his playing career, and obviously you've had a long and very successful time um, playing under very different coaches at many clubs as well. I just wonder what it's like um, if you think there's a generational cultural change now because I hear a lot from agents and and, and from players as well uh, and managers for that matter that it's more difficult to connect to younger players now because of the cultural shift in terms of social media, um, in terms of uh, music even or what happens you know what they like and what they don't like and stuff and so guys like Wenger and Ferguson um, kind of like lived out their time in charge of football clubs where they were respected simply for who they are whereas now it's more difficult for a, a head coach because he has to be able to relate to younger players they earn more money they've got more status they've got their social media um, profile, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Would you say that's part of why there's been a cultural shift? Um, yeah, I think I think as far as the generational point goes, I think that that spills further than football. But we we, we won't go on to that. Um, <laughs> I, I Let's not. Let's stick to football. I also think it, it's how the how football clubs and academies have have brought players through and brought players on that they're, they're used to. A different type of care uh, to, to to what uh, professional ones were. I mean, 
once upon a time you got your chance, you try to take it with both hands. Uh, I see boys sort of step into first teams these days and, and aren't scared to say they've got an injury, which which is probably the right thing to do. Uh, whereas when I was when I was a young young boy, I mean, I would play through anything to 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 take my opportunity. I I didn't want anything to to I didn't want to miss that opportunity. Whereas youngsters today seem to be um, a lot more protected by the club as well, and 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 then that goes hand in hand. And yeah, and and obviously young players that they're they've been brought up in an era where you should open your mouth and you should speak about your problems and, and if you have an injury and things and therefore the club look after them a lot more. And I think they feel more secure um, coming through their academies and, and obviously how the club's brought them on. They feel much more secure in their job and that they will have a future in the game where I think that's a whole mentality change to when old pros came through. There wasn't that, that's, that secureness, let's say. Doug, we've seen uh, examples of this in, in um, contrasting ways um, with Manchester United in the case of Paul Pogba and Nemanja Matic. Uh, we joked about um, the fact that Matic is a kind of like battle-hardened uh, Serbian international who would play on one leg and has done. Uh, and then you compare him to Paul Pogba, who, if his mood's not right, he's not quite happy to go on the pitch. Um, would you agree with Glenn with regards to how players are more enabled now to um, speak their mind and say, no, I'm not quite ready to play? Or, and the, the, I guess the opposite is where a manager says to you, no, you've got to go out and play anyway, son. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something I, I hear from other footballers, other coaches, is that... Um, the, the degree of investment and care and, you know, a word I hear sometimes is mollycoddling of academy players in England has created a generation of players who aren't just secure in what they do. They, you know, they, they expect and presume that things are going to work for them. Therefore, and you add the, the financial factor, so you've got, you know, for example, Chelsea and Manchester City hiring um, the top talent, bringing them into an academy and giving them contracts worth, um, in some cases, over £2 million a year. Promises to that amount of money as 16-year-olds guaranteed um, for several years. So players that, who are not out of school are being set up um, potentially financially for life um, from deals they're signing as as kids or their, their parents are signing as kids. And obviously that's going to change the dynamic for the people who have to coach and manage them and um, bring them to the top of their potential, turn them into first team players. So I think, I think Glenn makes a very good point that um, a younger manager who's closer to that generation um, probably has an advantage in, in handling those players where some of the older guys it might be they might come into conflict with them because they've been used to the previous generation of footballers who could be handled in other ways. Glenn, if you had a choice, if you were I, I know that your future um, ambitions are not necessarily in coaching, but if you were a coach going to a dressing room tomorrow 
Would you insist on the academy players cleaning the senior players' boots, or would you go with the whole "let's tell you how to cook spaghetti bolognese"? To be honest, I always I always found the boot thing uh, a really grounding things uh, a grounding thing to do for for the younger boys. Um, it was something sort of to work towards getting away from almost uh, not having to do the jobs around the place. And and once once they hadn't. They, they, they've sort of stepped into the first team on the 23s and they don't have to do jobs. It's sort of a step in the right direction, but yet they respect the young boys for, for, for what they do. But going back to um, to, to, to our first point, um, I think a lot of this is down to the inflated transfer prices as well and clubs having, some clubs having to produce players um, to sell on for, 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 for good fees. And then to, to stay afloat almost, and then others not wanting to pay the prices and and, and having having to bring kids on and and uh, I mean you look at the you look at the amounts that that teams spend these days. I mean Manchester City they spent a, a fortune on fullbacks alone. I mean if if they could have created a couple of those fullbacks, I mean I mean they, they save millions and millions of pounds. It, it's incredible. So I can see. Why the club give these these young lads even more time and 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 even more care? Because if they can get one or two through through the system in say three years, it's it's financially beneficial for them. It's, it's interesting you mentioned fullbacks, Glenn, because we did a story on Monday's podcast about Manchester City uh, agreeing a deal with Juan Larios, who's a fifteen-year-old fullback at Barcelona regarded as as probably the top fullback talent of his generation and they've they've gone and outbid everyone and given him a very substantial salary to come over but um if they can make that work you're right they, they they'll save what what um you're talking about 50 million fees for the the fullbacks they've signed so they can invest a lot in that player at a young age and then save a lot by um by Converting him into a first-team player, but the but the investments in each of those those uh, those signings is far higher than it's ever been, which I think absolutely it creates this environment. So so after you after you sign talent say at 15, 16, 14, whatever whatever age that they want to go and sign talent at, mm. you can give you can give these players um, whatever they want, and uh, they 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 become well off, and their parents become well off, and. and 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 that's rightfully so because they be co- could become something um, worth a hell of a lot of money to the club. Then for me, it boils down to mentality. Then you see the boy's mentality. What 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 he really wants. What did did he want to just get the money, or did he want to be footballer along? And that's that's why I. I admire people such as, I mean, it's a long list, but I mean, I'm just picking two off the top of my head here, Ibrahimovic and Wayne Rooney. Um, both could have retired at 25 and lived like kings for the rest of their life and their, fam- their family could have lived for generations on the money that they made. But it was in them. It, it, and it, it's not something that everyone's got, but it was in them to want to keep playing, to keep scoring goals, to keep winning and mentality, it's something that's in you and it, it, it's something that comes from your parents and the way that you're brought up. So I think that's the only flaw in giving young boys contracts when you don't know their mentality. 
That, that that's a great point, and that's the thing I've heard over and over again covering football is that the the, the top, the absolute top players, all want to prove themselves to be the best on the field and that's what drives them to be the top players and I wonder in your experience playing in football what percentage of the, the players that you've played with have that mentality and have you seen that change down the, down the period of your career of having that, that drive to be the absolute best regardless of financial benefits Um. Well, I, th- I think it, it boils down to to, to a, a lot of things, really. But I mean, I mean, anyone that plays to to a, to a, an older age, let's say, um, has that mentality. Um, like like I I just mentioned Ibrahimovic there. Um, he played. I think he's, he, he just he's just uh, he's just finished in LA at. He's thirty eight now. Yeah, he's thirty eight now, and I think he's looking for a club back in Europe. Um, he doesn't need to do that, but he wants to keep proving himself and proving age wrong and proving every single one of the doubters wrong. So I think anyone that plays to an older age has that mentality to a certain extent. It's something that you have in your mentality as well, Glenn, that you obviously are playing and, and continue to play, and you want to um, exhibit and, and show that you know, you're capable of doing this. Um, now... You know, no one's going to compare you to Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Um, ex- un- unfortunately, not. Ex- except <laughs> Zlatan himself, maybe. <laughs> but, um, but again, that mentality exists regardless of what level you're playing at, doesn't it? Yeah, personally, when when I take a step back and I look at my attributes, um, I, I, I would I would rate my mentality as one of my strongest points um, because technically, I'm I'm not I'm not brilliant and. Um, I've been doubted at every level I've I've played at, uh, and I mean that goes down to the seventh or eighth division in English football uh, of of old men saying he'll never make it. He's useless, and 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 that that sort of inner drive to be like, just carry on regardless, and 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 uh, no, I wouldn't even say believe in yourself, but just sort of have thick skin and be like, yeah, whatever, let's let's keep going, let's keep doing it and, and, and trying and, and pushing forward and we've got nothing to lose. And like I said, I, I would I would rate in my attributes, my mentality has been one of the strongest points. How difficult is that though for you to maintain, Glenn, because that sounds like something which needs incredible mental strength to uh, you know sustain that positive attitude. With regards to your career, and and said even now when um, you're not getting a regular uh, game time at Brighton and Albion, but you know you're still there training every day, trying to prove yourself to uh, you, your boss and say, look, I'm I'm ready and I'm able to do this. I can't I can't put it down to anything. It's just something that's in me, and I won't give up. It's like the preseason running. You you find out the the people with the strong mentality and the people with maybe the weaker mentality, the ones that quit after a while. I mean, I've done a Tony Pulis pre-season and that is, <laughs> that, that does separate the men from the boys. And listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that I was leading the race or anything like that. I wasn't fast or I wasn't, I wasn't um, blowing everyone else out of the water, but I was finishing it and I wouldn't let him beat me. 
um, whether that was up a mountain at, at 6.30am in Austria or whether that was not picking me on a Saturday afternoon or being in the stand on a Saturday afternoon, I wouldn't let him beat me. And that's just some, some sort of drive that I've got from my parents, from from the area I was brought up. I don't know, I can't pin it on something, but my my father always told me, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And that's always really stuck with me. So that you, so you can take that as you wish. It could be a person. So I've, I've used it for many centre-halves. Uh, so, <laughs> as, yeah, I mean... Who, as, who's as, the worst I, one? No, but I mean, I've, I've played against some big centre-halves. I mean, and I'm talking people that you never heard of in the Unibon Premier when I was 17, yeah. coming through uh, at work and, and looking at these men and being like, geez, he's huge. But I'm like, I'm going to give it everything I've got. And like, like I've always thought, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And and then and then that can be flipped into, into football clubs, so getting promoted in the Premier League or, or or even drawing a higher opposition in the FA Cup, and being sort of, I wouldn't say jealous, but maybe envious of the position they're in and, and wanting to beat them so bad, the bigger club being beaten by the smaller club. So that's that is just something that's within me, and and, and that's something I'm really grateful for. How much have you worked on other elements of your game in terms of uh, being tactically astute, getting into the right positions in the box, dealing with central defenders one-on-one, all those other elements that you can add, um, I guess you can work on where you don't need to have the same level of technical, pure technical ability controlling a ball? I think tactically you learn as you go along from your coaches and things and the more games you play. Um, and even now I'm still learning tactically. I mean, we've got a new, well, we've got a new manager in Graham Potter and he does it completely different to our role manager, Chris Hewton, who did it completely different to my manager at Bournemouth, Eddie Howe and, and so on and so forth right throughout my career. So you're always learning. I mean, there's there's definitely similarities, but you're always learning tactically. And then I think that a goal scorer's mentality and, and tactical awareness and positioning can't quite be taught. I think it's something you've either got or you haven't. And sometimes okay. I put it down to maybe a little bit of laziness. Um, I scored a goal at for Bournemouth uh, at Chelsea away. And um, it, it, was, it, was, it was a famous goal. We won 1-0. I think it was the first time that, that uh, the championship champions... Uh, had beaten the Premier League champions of of, of the year before, um, and and I and I read the reports and and I watched some TV clips and things and people were saying my movement was was brilliant and it, it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> sometimes you've just got to stand still and let everyone else around you move with the ball. You were at the back post, weren't you? Just kind of tap it again. Well, you could say loitering, <laughs> <laughs> but. Sometimes, but when the ball comes in, the second phase, even the first phase or the second phase, the defender gets taken by the ball. And that's where I feel the striker's got to try and ghost away from him. That, that, that is his, his second or two seconds he gets where the defender's focus has gone off him and onto the ball and the, and the defender's body's moving with the flight of the ball. And that gives you your your half yard or your yard where you 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 can sniff out a bit of space where the ball may come, um, 
and luckily enough in my career I've, I've been on that spot you're obviously conscious of that now glenn are you conscious of it in games are you conscious. thinking about that um, you, you've just you've just described it the the process of of being ahead of the defender in terms of your thinking not following the ball yeah no, not not necessarily ahead of him his his job description is just different from mine mm-hmm. and he's he's got the some as well as as well as mark a player defenders are also encouraged to mark space um so sometimes in in, in some instances I, I watch it back and i'm like the defender was right to do that he was right to go in that position and leave me alone. But by hook or by crook, that ball's managed to get into my zone and that's when I pounce. Um, so that there's there's so many different ways of looking at it. But for me, it's just just trying to find that, that, that bit of space or, or trying to guess where that player's going to put that ball, where he's going to head it. Where It's sort of edging your bet almost. It's, it's, it's a little bit like gambling and, and just... and, and uh, I think it's it's sort of a knack that you just you're born with. Um, it's 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 like a cheating knack. I've I've got a little boy, and uh, if I tell my little boy to run to that line and back a hundred times, he would do it. He would do it to every single line there and back. Whereas I would probably cheat. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think strikers do that. I, I, that that's something that's in us. I once played. Um, centre-back for Crystal Palace in a pre-season friendly um, over in America. And I was with my, I, I was with my good friend Peter Ramage at the back. And we, we, we got rid of the ball and the ball was in, in the opposition penalty area and he is screaming at me on the halfway line. I'm like, Peter, what, what, why are you shouting at me? Like the ball's all the way up there. He's like, no, let's get organised. Where's the, where's the, def- uh, where's the striker and things like this. I'm like, this guy's crazy, but it is. It, it gives me such a different view of of how to play football and how and how different different positions uh, see the game. Because I I didn't knock off for a second in that game, and I was so physically tired because every time the the, the striker ran ran. It wasn't. It wasn't an option. I had to run with him. I could try and play him offside, but I mean, I had. I had to follow his run. I had to keep the line with the rest of my defenders. Whereas, as a striker, you do as you wish when you wish. At the, the, the top and bottom of it. I mean, the manager can can encourage you to run channels or encourage you to come feet. But I mean, you might come feet two times out of four. You might run channels one time out of three. It's it's sort of it's it's on a whim. It's it's when I want to. So, to play centre half and then play centre forward is just such a contrasting game. At this point, I would like to say, Jonah, if you're listening, always run those lines hundred times, <laughs> even though your dad says you shouldn't. Um, <laughs> Glenn, there is a there's the urban myth uh, which says that you shared a underground train back with Chelsea fans. Um, after you scored that goal for Bournemouth, which won the match at Stamford Bridge, um, sounds to me like something which uh, is very much you because you're very down to earth. Um, did they recognise you on the tube when you were on that uh, uh, that day after the game? 
Uh, well, I'd like to add that it was it was public transport. It wasn't just for Chelsea fans, even though there was a large majority <laughs> of Chelsea fans on there. Um, it was, even though it they was, think that it does, 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 does look good. Well, we, we had a good day off after that game, uh, as you can expect. And uh, I didn't want to go back to Bournemouth to come home to Brighton. So my quickest route out of there was uh, by tube and then, and then down on the train. And yes, I did get it. And I did get noticed... Um, and yeah, that, the, the nothing, nothing really happened. Uh, some guy was like, "Do you score today?" I was like, "Yeah." And I, th- I think he was as taken by surprise that I was on the tube because I don't think you catch many of the Chelsea boys on the tube. Well, that's very true, actually, because I think um, most tube um, uh, carriages for Chelsea players come in the shape of Lamborghinis. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> however, the fact that you were recognised is um, quite unusual. For a you know Premier League player, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it really depends on on what area of the country you're you're representing. Really, um, I, I mean, I've like I said, I've played for Crystal Palace in the past, and I think in London you just sort of it you just you just thing off into the shadows. You're 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 almost a nobody. Whereas if you were playing for a Northern club, let's say in Leeds or a Middlesbrough and you walk around one of those cities, you're getting noticed 100%. So I, th- I think it, it definitely does depend on what, what club you represent. So um, Glenn and Duncan, I'm going to be um, Santa Claus stroke Grinch right now. Um, Cause I want to ask you both um, to give me your answers with regards to what you prefer on Christmas Day or not. Uh, but first of all, I'd like to ask Glenn just to give us um, his view on what it's like to be a football over Christmas because, um, you know, we often hear about, you know, how you have to train on Christmas Day and you've got to be very, very abstemious uh, in terms of the celebrations with your family and everything else. Has that been your experience, Glenn? I'm sure it has been. Um, what's, been your, what's been your best and worst Christmas as a footballer? So- so before I go on to this point, yeah. I don't want, I want to tell you the truth, but I don't <laughs> want to come across like I'm mourning. Okay. <laughs> I mate, just wanted to. <laughs> mate, you, you've got an accent. You always thought you're mourning. <laughs> no, I just want to get that out, out of the way before, because we all appreciate being footballers and, and we, we appreciate the positions we're in. But sometimes, and this is probably the worst time for us, Christmas uh, is not, it's, it's, it, it's, it it can be difficult. It can be difficult for for footballers. Um, I'm lucky enough to live uh, to have a family and to live uh, close by my family, so I can spend um, Christmases with them. So on one hand, that's brilliant. Uh, on the other hand, having to get up and leave at five o'clock from uh, from a, a, a nice um, warm. Uh, embracing family home uh, to go and get on on a on a bus to to wherever can be really difficult. Um, and I think think more so than 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 my situation like that. It's 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 the boys that are, are maybe foreign, um, maybe just uh, away from their families. Maybe maybe uh, maybe their families are based elsewhere in the UK and and I haven't come down for Christmas. So spending like like Christmases in a flat on their own. Having a bit of pasta and chicken, maybe for their dinner. Um, I mean, you can cut a really lonely figure at this time of year, um, but it goes unnoticed because we 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 get paid handsomely and uh, and we shouldn't mourn. 
So I, I, I'm just confused. Are you saying that you have your, your roast dinner at five in the morning before you go on the bus? No, sorry. When we when teams <laughs> leave at five at night. I was just joking. Was just oh, joking. right. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> miles away. This is the time of year when uh, I think most people don't really relate to what, you know, is the reality of football. Yeah, because, I mean, it, it, because the it, fans love doing fixtures on Boxing Day and New Year's Day and everything else. Yeah. Whereas you guys have to train on Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Yeah, well, when when the majority of the public are off on their Christmas holidays, they they want to to be entertained. They want to watch sport and they want to watch their local teams. Totally get that. And uh, and I I was part of that and I will be part of that again. Um, but when you're that entertainment, it, it, it can be quite difficult. So, so you're saying, Glenn, that the hardest part is actually having to step away from your family and your children rather than having to look after your diet or to avoid drinking or, you know, enjoying Christmas in the way everyone else does. I, th- I think, I think um, that... Yeah, I mean, they're both really hard, but 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 having to walk away. I mean, the first thing I look at um, when the fixtures are out, who and where are we at at Boxing Day? That that is that is my that is my go-to. Um, not, not a particular team or anything like that. Am I home or away on Boxing Day? That, that's my <laughs> first. That's the first place I look. Um, uh, and then and then from that, is it local? Uh, what time's the kickoff? Um, so, so yeah. Spurs, Spurs, not too bad this season, then. Spurs not too bad, but it's still it's still an overnight stay. So, so we, we, we'll yeah. have look there on Christmas night and on Christmas it's, night. Yeah. It's it's quite strange, really, because you're obviously leaving your family for your sort of adoptive family in the football place. Because I mean, we spend so much time together, travelling up and down the country and things. That, that the boys, your family as well, to a certain extent. Um, so it can be a bit surreal, but the. Um, the saving grace is that I think TV is quite good on Christmas night. <laughs> Have you ever had a proper Christmas, Glenn? Just out of curiosity, when you were suspended or injured, or when you could actually have a proper roast dinner? Um, yeah, I, I always, I always, I always have a, a, a proper roast dinner. Just probably not as much as, as everyone else, and and try and not have as many chocolates as the others, and, and definitely no alcohol. Um, I, I did have one Christmas where I did my ACL. Um, was that Palace? Yeah, that was a Palace. Yeah, and um, even though I probably did enjoy that Christmas a little bit more, there was something missing, and that was playing football. So yeah. <laughs> you can never never be happy. I was going to say it's it's a you know Hobson's choice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's uh, it's it, it's just one of those catch twenty two scenarios, isn't it? But I mean. Like I say, before I was a footballer, I enjoyed the Christmas Christmas period, and and, and after I'm a footballer, I, I'll enjoy the Christmas period. Um, whilst I'm a footballer, it is the most difficult uh, time of the season, I think, for us. Um, and 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 that comes from me that's that's got a family in and around me. I mean, it must be really difficult for boys who haven't and spend spend Christmas Day alone. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've been in that boat before as well, and it's it that that that's not nice and. You do turn into a little bit of a Christmas Christmas Grinch around that time, and the the, the physical the physical demands of the the Christmas schedule. I mean, we, you, you see, we see foreign managers coming in and sort of shaking their head in disbelief at how many games English teams play over that the festive season. And although it's changing this year, not having a a Christmas break of any time, 
how much harder is it having that frequency of match in sort of the coldest time of the year and the shortest days of the year? Yeah, it is. It is, but it works both ways. So obviously, when you're playing games, which is what you'd much rather do uh, than train, mm. you're, you're not training as much. Um, so the first team boys, um, if 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 you're if you're playing a, a good amount of time, you'll come in and you'll be you'll be pampered. Uh, it's all about recovery, food, massage, uh, anything you can do to get that edge and, and to to get your legs back for. For what can sometimes be forty hour, forty eight hours later between the twenty sixth and the twenty eighth game, um, so it's all about recovery for those boys. But then on the other hand, the boys that aren't playing, so so the particular man I'm in at the minute, we don't train as hard because it's we're constantly in and and obviously we're leading into games all the time. So this is not going to be a, a very um, uh, equal matchup, uh, Glenn. But I want to. Um ask you and Duncan about um, uh, a quickfire round in terms of uh, Christmas preferences. Um, we do this on Freddie's podcast all the time. And this is the last one of uh, 2019. So um, I'm going to give you both choices of two things and I want you just to give me your answer uh, to both. Uh, Duncan, I excuse you from having had not had a professional footballing career but at the same time <laughs> for obvious reasons for obvious reasons but i do expect you to give good answers so um first of all glenn turkey dinner or not roast dinner traditional turkey turkey for you uh would that include a yorkshire pudding or a bit of stuffing i think i'd squeeze one and a little bit of stuffing yeah why not <laughs> duncan uh, yeah, Mum's turkey Christmas dinner, you can't be that. And uh, Yorkshire pudding's involved in that, obviously. Right, okay. So here's the worst one. Turkey dinner or three points, Glenn? Oh! <laughs> yeah. That's a hard one, isn't it? That's a, that's a hard one. Oh, I've got to say three points, haven't I, unfortunately? can i take a draw on a turkey dinner is that, is that on the table yeah you could do you could do, yeah, do yeah. Are, you, are you throwing a goal in there for me as well mate you just you you write your own script <laughs> no i'll take three points three points duncan um well, I'm just, uh, I, th- I think, Glenn, with the, they're playing Tottenham and Boxing Day, I think a point in a, a turkey dinner would be good after they give them such a hiding in, <laughs> at, uh, in the uh, home match. Very true, very true, very true. Okay, and my last one for the quick fire round is going to be, if you've got to give a present to your best friend in football, what would it be? Uh, Duncan, I'm going to ask you to go first on this because I want Glenn to give himself a bit of time to think about it. <sighs> Um, present to my best friend in football. Um, gee, I have to work out who the best friend in football is. Probably, it's probably a probably a coach, and uh, the present I would give him would be a, a job that matches his abilities. So okay, uh, that was that, that was quite <laughs> the, <laughs> that was quite to the bone, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, so I am not going to name my best friend in football, but what I would give him is two yellow cards equal in a red. <laughs> on the 21st I give an early Christmas present and that will be in fact you know what I give him a straight red card on the 21st of December and give him three games <laughs> a three game ban so he can enjoy the Christmas and New Year 
That, that gives me an opportunity to tell a story that I was passed on by someone who used to work at Rangers about Richard Goff, who in addition to being a Dundee United legend, grew up in South Africa and uh, quite enjoyed going out to South Africa during this period of the year for obvious reasons, because the weather's a lot better there. Um, and he used to uh, quite frequently, when he was captaining Rangers, ensure that he got suspended during this period of the year. And in fact, I was told that he would go to the referee before the game and tell him that he needed either a yellow card if he, were, if he was close enough to suspension or he needed a red card in, in that game and, uh, and get it sorted out in advance so he could uh, have his holidays organised for the winter stroke summer period in South Africa. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm just feeling very, very disappointed. But I didn't have this information before, so that I could actually have a spread bet on <laughs> yellow cards. <laughs> L- let's just say that's not the first time I've heard of those. Uh, there. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> name names. Name names. I'm, I'm going to say that that, um, that um, Duffy would be very pleased with your um, present. <laughs> I think I think any one of the first team members would be very pleased with my present. Oh, magic, magic. Um, so anyway, this is. Um, Friday's Transfer Window podcast. As you know, we love having you debate uh, beyond um, the broadcast as well. So please get in touch at Transfer Podcast at Duncan Castle at Garbo SJ and of course at GM underscore 83 if you want to engage Glenn as well in any of the things that we've talked about today. Um, This is the second last, the preliminary, I should say, podcast before the um, end of 2019 um, we thank you all very much for listening to us and for your support and for the fact that we have become one of the top five podcasts in the world in sport which has been incredible in the last year or so so um, we will see you all uh, on Monday or hear you all on Monday um, as for now thanks for listening and uh, a very Good weekend to everyone. Thank you. And Ian, we, we have a final question for Glenn, don't we? Oh, do we? Yeah, Glenn, um, in alphabetical order, where did Brighton come in the Premier League? <laughs> oh. <laughs> that was oh, funny, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? It's, it's much harder than what you think, actually. I, I will say that, especially when you just put on the spot when there's a camera and everything in front of you. But yeah, it was it was uh, it was it's worth its weight in comedy gold that one. <laughs> Especially I'm sitting in the full kit. <laughs> <laughs>